Second Timothy chapter 2. I know it's a, a diversion from where we've been on Sunday mornings. But uh, we're going to look at the discipline of a servant. And I know that sounds really, you're like, oh, discipline, that sounds really bad. That's a word we don't like to talk about. Um, but as we just saw in the announcements about uh, God's vision, if you remember the Great Commission, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. So there's this idea of Jesus having a, an outline way of living or an expectation for his disciples. And we, as disciples, are called to go and make disciples. And you can't make disciples without discipline. Um, so just so we get rid of the, we had this stigma about the word discipline. We only think of like a paddle or something like that because that's how we've been raised to think of discipline. That's not really what it is. I mean, it, it has a, that a little bit, but uh, I just, we're going to go into the, uh, the dictionary, if you don't mind. The word discipline as a noun is the practice of training people to obey rules or a code of behavior using punishment to correct disobedience. Okay, so that you're like, oh, punishment, this is harsh, I don't want to hear about this. We're going to talk about this stuff today, and it's not to, to put a trip on anybody. We're not here to make people feel bad about themselves. We're also not here to make you feel good about yourself if there's something in your life that you shouldn't feel good about. Um, but it says, it, disobedience as a noun is a lack of proper parental or school discipline. So that's how we hear that. There's also another way of saying a branch of knowledge, typically one studied in higher education. For example, sociology is a fairly new discipline. You've heard it used like that. Okay. Uh, as a verb, it's to train, to obey rules or a code of behavior. Again, using punishment to correct disobedience. So that's kind of that's the only part we think of when we think of discipline. But there's this idea of training, training your body, training your mind to behave, to think, to act in a certain way. And surprisingly, the Bible talks a lot about it. But we, we, we tend to think about rules as the law. And Jesus fulfilled all the rules, so I don't have to. Which is true. But it's amazing how often we see commands on how to behave in the New Testament from Jesus himself. And... Um, Paul is talking in 2 Timothy, to Timothy, and uh, what's really, uh, just to give you guys a context of what, where he is in this section, in chapter 1, he's encouraging Timothy to stay the course, to be determined, to be steadfast in the face of hardship and obstacles. And he says, in verse 15 of chapter 1, if you're there, you can just kind of look back a little bit, he says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Why did they turn away from him? If you look even earlier, he talks about, he's encouraging Timothy, and he says in verse 8, Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. So evidently, because Paul, who was regularly being thrown in prison, which I would say is a hardship, um, people were saying, well, obviously, this guy's not being used of the Lord. Because if he was, he would never end up in prison. Because that's not the way I think God operates. Right? I mean, that's kind of how we think through things sometimes. When something appears bad, we say, well, this must not be of the Lord. And Paul is he's encouraging Timothy, saying, everybody in Asia sees what's happening to me, and they're saying, forget this. I don't want this. And he's saying, you need to stand fast and be determined. And 
it says, he says, they flagellus, it says in verse 15, and Hermogenes. Those are weird names anyway. No wonder they just turned away from Paul. They were just weirdos. Hermogenes. It sounds like something you'd find in like a a highly saturated fat content. Like you read the ingredients, it's it's got 3% Hermogenes in it. It's just really strange. He says, May Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. You see the difference there? There's a a contrast there between Phagellus and Hermogenes and Onesiphorus. These names, for some reason, they didn't translate into the 21st century. I don't know why. But um, So when he says this, he he transitions into chapter 2. So oftentimes when you see uh, you then, or therefore, you kind of have to go back and see, okay, well, where is he picking up from? Especially when I'm telling you to go to chapter 2 of a book. When do you start a book in chapter 2? But for the sake of today, that's what we're doing. Verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So he's saying, you've heard from me the truth, and it was taught to you among many other people, and it's going to be entrusted. He wants Timothy to entrust it to other men who will be able to teach others. Again, making disciples. Just like we talked about. You can't make a disciple if you yourself are not one. So how can we be a disciple as the New Testament shows us a disciple should be? So it goes on and he says in verse 3, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And I probably just lost everybody. Share in suffering. Why do you always talk about suffering? And I feel like I I went back and was looking at some of the things that I've taught in the past. I was like, man, I'm really harping on suffering a lot. I don't... It's not intentional. Maybe it's because I feel like I'm always suffering. <laughs> or like you're going from one trial to the next to the next, and you're like, okay, maybe there's a lesson here. <laughs> maybe I need to, to figure out what the Bible has to say about this. But verse 4, he says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So I want to take a look at this idea of a soldier. We, we often, you know, we, we sang the song in, in Sunday school, I'm in the Lord's Army. Right? Yes, sir. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. Just kind of a weird song to teach kids. Um, I think, like, shoot the artillery, kids! And then they just all run in here and take over. Um, but we see this idea in the New Testament very often about the war that's going on. And we don't really like to think about that. I mean, we think about physical war, we think about Afghanistan, that's where the wars are, and, and uh, ISIS and all this stuff, but we get real, that creeps us out enough, but we get really, really uncomfortable when people start to talk about the unseen war. And what, what war is this? It's the war that when Satan and his angels fell and rebelled against God, you know, just to give us a little bit of an idea, a little theology or angelology, is that the word? Um, we oftentimes think of the war of Satan versus God and who's going to come out on top and that's not really the war that we're talking about Satan wanted something that God had given human beings which was to be in the image of God and if you look at the the different passages of the scripture that are attributed to Satan speaking Lucifer he says I'll be like the most high I'm going to set myself up to be like God but it wasn't for the created beings, the angels, to be like God, to be in their, their image. So when Satan fell and was banished, it was his job now, in his mind, to set war against mankind. 
Not against God. It's not like God's like, oh man, I better get my armor on. God's like, whatever. You know, like he's not concerned by Satan's attacks on him. He's concerned by the attacks of Satan on his children to defame his image in them. And that's really what sin is. It's it's the enemy's way to try to get God's image bearers to disgrace themselves rather than accomplishing what they were created to do, which is to point people back to the creator. The idea of a disciple of God making disciples. But if we are concerning ourselves with the affairs of this life, and you know, if you're a soldier and you're concerned about your Instagram, you're not going to be honorably discharged from you know from from your active service. You know, it's not it's not going to work that way. You have to you you meet people that are Marines and stuff, and even after they've served their time and they move on, they're forever different. You know, I, I don't relate to them very well because I'm just a very like uh, haphazard, artistic, weird dreamer guy. I don't work very well when someone walks in and they're just like. And they got their buzz cut and all that stuff. And I'm just like, oh, I look like Wolverine. <laughs> I can't deal with you. I don't know how this works. But it's amazing the points that people like that have. And they're not concerned about trivial things, especially when they're in active duty. I mean, it's like it's not even a concern. They're trained to be about the business at hand. And... This isn't the kind of Christianity that we often think about, or at least I should say what that unbelievers or, or people out there think about. They think of Christianity as a crutch for weak people to help them get through life. They think of Christianity as, yeah, you're going through a hard time, so try this Christianity thing out. It, it works for some people. And then you have the other people that are like, I'm really strong. I don't need that. That's good for you, but I'm, I'm a confident person. I got my act together. I don't need Christianity. Which is really backwards and wrong. And for those of us who are Christians, we know that Christianity is not a crutch. It's the life support. It's not helping us get to where we need to go. It is who we are. And it drives where we go. Does that make sense? Um, But I, I think sometimes our own churches create that or foster that stereotype about Christianity because... It's very popular to talk about Jesus as a cure-all and a feel-good thing. Christianity, like, God's going to take all your problems away. And then when problems happen, everybody goes, what? Like, everybody becomes Phagellus and Hermogenes. What? You know, for example, you know, people that are being just, they're outspoken about their faith, and man, they get drugged through the muck and the mire. It's ridiculous. And people see that and they go, okay, I'm just going to keep it quiet. I don't want to cause a problem here. Because God wouldn't want me to do that because that could lead to maybe some hardship. And I, you know, how can I praise God through hardship? I should, I, I, I call, I sign up for the ministry where, hey, man, look at all this great stuff that's happening to me. It's because I'm a Christian. We like that, right? We like that. I like that. <clears throat> haven't been able to do it very often, but uh, I, we like that aspect of it. And I'm not here to, to disparage people or their ministries, but it's, it's important that we are presenting Christianity the way it's represented in the Bible, not the way it's represented in America. Do we understand the difference there? It's a lot easier to gain churchgoers when you don't discuss the difficulty and sacrifice of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. But, again, people want Jesus to then fix all their problems for them, rather than 
lean on him in the midst of their problems. They find out that Jesus is not going to take away all their problems, then they walk away from him, just like these guys did. And he's encouraging Timothy, no, don't do that. Be like a soldier, that you're unfazed by the things that are happening to you. Because you know, in the end, the outcome. We have the end of the story. We can read it. Um, so he'll go on and he says, he speaks to the soldier. So there's one example he gives. And then he starts to talk about athletes. And he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And that's a word we don't like to talk about in church sometimes. So he's saying, there's a way that we should operate as disciples of Jesus Christ. Just like an athlete. If you're training for the Olympics, do you see athletes eating a 12-count box of Entenmann's Rich Frosted Donuts? I don't, even though those are like my favorite. I'm not a big donut guy, but for some reason those fake Entenmann's ones that have the hard chocolate shell and the yellow cake inside, I could eat like five of them with milk and I'm just set. Until someone brings more, then I'll just keep going. <laughs> but... When someone is striving for the Olympics, you know, everybody has a pursuit and they're like, this is, this is my goal in life. It's amazing what they're able to give up, right? People who are training and they're like, I have a goal weight. I'm going to hit that goal weight. And we're like, every temptation, it's like, no, I have this in mind. I'm going to fit in that dress. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And it's so easy. I mean, it's not always easy, but you know what I mean? But it's like when you have a goal, it's like, I'm just, bam. For these guys that are training and they have to get to their weight for their fights and all this stuff, it's like, what kind of sacrifice is involved there? But then when we put that on being a disciple of Jesus Christ, we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What about my freedom? What about my rights? I should be able to live however I want and rely on God to get me through the rest of the way. And I'm not saying that anybody in this room has ever thought that. I'm talking about the other Christians that, that think that stuff. <laughs> I'm thinking about myself, to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't like that when someone says things are difficult. And if you uh, if we could put the verse uh, Luke chapter 8 up on the screen. You guys know this, right? We know the parable of the sower. It's very popular. It's, and we hear about it. And we, we focus on the people in the beginning. And, and we, we, like to be, we like to think of ourselves as the fourth soil, the ones that are bearing fruit. Because we're the ones listening to the message. Um, but he says, but the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root who believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, fall away. So these are like Fagellus and Hermogenes, for example. I had no intention of referencing these two guys so often, but it, it helps <laughs> just to say their names. It'll stick into your brain for the, the rest of the week. Um, when trials came, and they said, wait a minute, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's in prison. So I don't want that. I'm going to go. They didn't have that root. They allowed themselves to fall away. And then we saw the soldier, and he says, he's not concerned. He's not entangled with the affairs of this life. It's like the, the contrast of the next soil. says, the ones that fell among the thorns are those, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and the pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. You know, Chris is often referencing Hebrews 6 when he says, let's go on to maturity. Let's not worry about the, the basic principles anymore. There's a next level that God is calling us to rise to. And I believe it's becoming a disciple who makes disciples. I believe that that is the calling on every Christian. 
Not necessarily being a preacher, not necessarily being a, a televangelist or being somebody who just reaches the masses. I'm talking about discipling a person. One. A disciple making another disciple. Reproducing. The fourth soil is the one that receives it gladly and bears fruit. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And thankfully, God doesn't say, okay, now go do it. There are rules. There are Things, codes of behavior, if you were. There is a discipline to becoming a disciple. There is teaching them to, com- to, to follow the things that Jesus commanded. And then uh, in verse 6, he says, It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So again, we see these tied together with the sower here. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So... Jesus, when he's describing the kingdom of God, he actually describes it as being a difficult way of life. He says, few find it, the way. When we read that verse, we often think about people being saved and people that aren't saved. You know, the people that are saved are finding the difficult hard way, the narrow way, and the people that aren't saved are on the broad way that leads to death. But what about people who have accepted Jesus, like the people in the third category, And then they are choked out by the cares of this life and they're led astray by them. They're entangled by what's going on here. They're concerned about, I don't know, what hashtag is relevant for today. I mean, I'm I'm all about social media, unfortunately. I have to give it up probably soon because it's just ridiculous. Um, But, you know, and it doesn't even have to be something as trivial as that. There's really serious issues that people deal with on a daily basis, and I'm not trying to make light of that. I'm talking about financial hardships, relational hardships, things that are all you can think about. They smack you in the head when you wake up. They're on your mind when you go to sleep. They keep you from sleeping. That's what I'm talking about. Obviously, these are things that can get in our way and can keep us from being who God has called us to be. And that's the warfare that we talk about. It's the enemy trying to get people to forget what really matters, eternity. So when we look at this, when we, we look at Christians, and, and we don't like to judge Christians because you know we, we like to quote the verse that says, judge not. Um, they don't go to say, the judgment you use will be measured back to you. So basically what, what's being said there is, if you're going to judge, make sure that you can't be judged with the same amount of force, I guess. You know, because Jesus also says to, to check fruit, see if there's fruit, mature fruit there. We look at our life. We have to do our own self-examination. Um, what about people that are Christians in name only? And you look at their life and you say, wow, man, they just, they're glutting themselves on everything the world has to offer. Making themselves happy, doing whatever they want. And then they come to church, and you're like, praise Jesus, man. This is great. I love it. I love that forgiveness feeling. You know, like Chris was saying, that perpetual, like, sinning on Saturday night, praising Jesus on Sunday night. And they like that feeling of, oh, God took all my sins away. Let's start over. A new, fresh start. And I'm not trying to make light of that, because those things are true. But there is a time when we have to rise up and say, what next? What is God calling me to do? God didn't just save us so that we could go to heaven someday. He's positioned us, those of us that live in America, to be a 
to be in this nation that for the most part over our history has been considered a Christian nation. Meaning people have been able to uh, you know, have religious freedom, operate in the, uh, you know, free from any tyranny of, of how we choose to, to worship God. What are we doing to take advantage of that? People get really, really upset, and especially on social media, and I have to like hide people from my feed because all they post is just like vitriol and, you know, you know that this guy's the Antichrist? And did you know that? And I'm just like, please, please don't share that somebody's the Antichrist on social media because I'm pretty sure they're not. Um, I don't know, I'm, that's just me. <laughs> but we're caught up in that the affairs of this life and meanwhile people are dying and entering a Christless eternity which is a nice way of saying they're going to hell these are things that when Paul is talking to Timothy saying please don't get caught up in this don't get caught up in man my life stinks right now I can't possibly do what God's called me to do because I have to deal with this and it's funny because God has a way of putting passages in my way to teach that he's trying to teach me because I've been going through this. Like, and I have to like, it's funny, like if I ever go back and listen to something that I taught him before, I'm like, I said that? Okay, because like, right now I don't believe that. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's sad, you know, because like, you can like study something and know it inside and out, but when you're going through it, it's really, really hard to apply. So, I'm not coming at you guys as like, I live by this code of behavior of disciple, and here's how you do it too. I'm not Tony Robbins up here telling you how to get rich in seven ways and all that stuff. Like, we're in this together. I'm usually sitting there, so uh, you know, I'm usually listening and, and hearing somebody else. So, I, I know exactly how you guys must be feeling. Um. There's more to living the Christian life than wallowing in secular obesity. Expecting God to whip us into spiritual shape. I'm going to start using some athletic, uh, you know, for those of you that like to work out, obviously you can see that I am a huge enthusiast of working out. Um, <laughs> let's uh, go to Hebrews chapter 12 in the verses. I, I, I should have them up. It's a long passage, so you can turn there if you would like, but we do have it up on the screen. We've talked about how hardship can be external. It can be people doing things. It can be just life hitting us where it hurts. It could be also, dare I say, God allowing things into our life. Yeah. You know, I, I've been really challenged by this question. And I'll share it with you. I shared it at one of the Church Without Walls nights. Um, when we start to feel like Things shouldn't be happening to us if God was really in control. God kind of shared this question with me. He said, do you think that I would use suffering in your life if it meant the salvation of a lost soul? And I was like, oh man, God, why'd you have to say that? Because <laughs> Paul was in prison. And out of his prison, he wrote this epistle which is what's teaching us here to go and to be a, a disciple that endures. So I, I think it's really, when we start to feel that, when we start to feel that chafing, and we say, this couldn't be from God because it's bad, it, we, we have to remind ourselves that what we see as bad is oftentimes not seen through the light of eternity. 
We're not seeing it through the eyes of God. We're seeing it through our temporary mind. And it's important that we look and say, God, are you using this to hinder the gospel? God's never going to do something to hinder the gospel. In Philippians 1, Paul says that what I'm experiencing is actually furthering the gospel. Being in prison. People are becoming more bold. Not these two guys that we talked about. That's why he's encouraging Timothy. He's saying, you, use this. Become disciplined in how you live your life. So that what I'm going through is not in vain. So in, in Hebrews, it says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. This is Jesus. So that you won't grow weary and lose heart. So this is a, this is a good perspective. Read these verses when you feel like you're going through a hard time. In struggling against sin... In sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus felt sin's effects so greatly that he wept in the garden and sweat blood on the ground. Have you resisted temptation so that blood poured out of you? I haven't, sadly. <laughs> Have you gone to a cross and shed your blood because of sin? No. Jesus is the one who understands suffering and he says, consider him. You know, right before these verses is when he says, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He's the one there waiting at the finish line for us. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son whom he receives. And the next verse. Endure it as discipline. Endurance. We see that a lot here. God is dealing with you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So if you feel the discipline of God, praise him, because it means you're one of his own. We don't like discipline unless we're the one giving it, right? <laughs> we have no problem disciplining people when we're right, and they need to be shown how they're wrong. But once we bring Christianity into it, all of a sudden, it's, we can't tell people that they're wrong. We can't discipline them. We can't discipline ourselves to live in any sort of way that is pleasing to God. And then verse 9. Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. Notice that. What seemed good to them, not what was good for the child. It was good for the child, hopefully. Not always. They're earthly fathers. They're, they're, they're humans. They're sinful. But he does it for our benefit. So it's not just because God feels good about it and he's like, yeah, seems good. Like it. It's actually for our benefit. And we'll never be able to see that when we're thinking that it's not from God. Because we'll dismiss it. Any hardship that we endure, we'll, we'll forget it. We'll say, this is, I cast this out. I can't handle this. But it's amazing. Once I start to, to see it through God's perspective and say, this is, this is from the Lord. All of a sudden, I start to see the benefits of how he's training me. And I'm not talking about God is just whipping us and beating us. It's not that. I'm talking about things that come into our lives that God uses as opportunities for his glory to be revealed in us. Because when you behave in a way and you have peace and joy and hope through a hardship, and you're like, man, 
that must be God in me because it's not me. Because everything in me wants to cry out and say, enough, I can't handle this. And when you open your eyes and you put your feet on the floor next to your bed in the morning and you go about your business and you don't allow that trial, that hardship to ruin you and rule you, that's God in you. That's God reflecting his glory from his vessel. That's why it's important that we say, okay, Lord, whatever it is, let it further your gospel. Don't let my trip or my feelings hinder what you're trying to do in and through me. Which is why it's important that we allow ourselves as disciples to be disciplined so that we can then go and make disciples. So this idea of war, we talked about it briefly. The word about warfare is strategia. I have it up there, I think. I don't know. Stratego. That, that game, which was awesome. Oh, I forgot the very last verse. I apologize. Go back. This is the good one. I've, I totally left it out. Sorry, go back one slide. Uh, Hebrews 12, 11. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time. True that. But painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So there's a training that goes on as Christians, or should go on, I think. doesn't necessarily mean it's going on all the time. That's why we have these, you know, we meet on Sunday mornings, we meet on Wednesday nights, we, we do the book studies, we, we get together as Christians, iron sharpening iron, and all these things that we see in the scriptures. The importance of being trained to live a Christ-like life. We, we tend to shake against it, but we have to understand that there's an internal war going on. And uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3, uh, the word, sorry, the word stratia, which is that it just has to do with military service. You know, we're, we are in a war. We are enlisted in soldier, as soldiers, whether we want to be or not. When we put our faith in Christ, he puts a commission on us to go and make disciples. Because the enemy is warring against all those that don't believe in Jesus to keep them from ever believing. And it's we as soldiers that go on the front lines, the frontiers, to go and save those lost people. For although we are walking in the flesh, we do not wage war in a fleshly way. Since the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Even those thoughts when we question what's going on in our life and why God's allowing a hardship in our life. Even those thoughts, we have to take captive into the obedience of Christ. Not just sinful thoughts. Like, oh, I shouldn't look that person that way. Or I shouldn't be hateful to that person in that way. Which is often a great application for these verses. But there's also those thoughts that creep in and say, God, is this you? Because this isn't what I think you should be doing in my life. Those thoughts, too. And the cool thing is, and this is just a side note, God is not hindered or hurt by those thoughts. I often say, God is not Tinkerbell, where he needs us to clap our hands to believe in him, to prove that he exists. He's not hindered by our own doubt. Meaning, he's going to move. And our doubt dictates whether we can be involved or not. He's going to do it. He's going to use somebody to go and accomplish his purpose. So, that's just a side note. Um, we also know Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Sorry, I'm reading it from version. Or maybe I'm not. 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stay. Doing all, just like those soldiers that train and go through boot camp, just like those athletes that train for the Olympics from an age of like four years old. You think about that. They don't go to their friend's house to play Xbox Live because they're at the figure skating rink or they're training or they're running hurdles or they're doing things. The idea that we need to give up something becomes very, very, very hurtful or, or it hinders us. But it's important that we don't forget uh, this verse in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything, who, however they do it, to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable one. And then in verse 26, Therefore I do not run like one who runs aimlessly, or box like one who beats the air. Instead I discipline my body and bring it under strict control, so that after preaching to others I myself will not be disqualified. The word disqualified there is adokimos. I don't know if that's pronounced correctly, but essentially it's the word that means approved with the A prefix, which means not approved. Okay, so just really quickly, I want to read this to you. It's uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse. It's on his commentary in the Book of Romans. In the ancient world, there was no banking system as we know it today, and no paper money. All money was made with metal, heated until liquid, poured into molds, and allowed to cool. When the coins were, coins were cooled, it was necessary to smooth off the uneven edges. The coins were comparatively soft, and of course, many people shaved them closely. In one century, more than 80 laws were passed in Athens to stop the practice of whittling down the coins then in circulation. Essentially, the money was supposed to be valued at its weight. Now it doesn't matter. It's all fiat currency. But if you had a pound, like you came with like a pound or a shekel, that was the measure of weight, and, the, and it, had to do, it had to meet that weight. But people would shave it, and they'd trim it so that they would get more back for their bucks. And he said there were people that were put in place that they would not accept that counterfeit money. They were men of honor who put only genuine full-weight money into circulation. Such men were called dokimos. And this word is used here for the Christian as he is to be seen by the world. That we would not be counterfeit. That we would not be disapproved or disqualified. Um, I just want to read the last couple verses here and we'll wrap up. Verse 8 in Second uh, Timothy 2. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. He's not doing it for himself. He's not doing it for a pat on the back. Everything that Paul goes through, he understands that it's one more person that's been elected by God for eternal salvation. And it's Something bad happening to me leads to them being saved and bring it on. <clears throat> that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Amen. The, um, if we think that God would not have a calling on our life to do something radical, to do something daring, then maybe we should look at the first church, to look at the disciples, the apostles that God has called he gave them a great commission, but he also gives it to us. 
I've read this, and I've, I've taught on it before, but I don't think we'll ever fully grasp it. God wants us to live a life that is deliberate. I remember very specifically a moment where God basically said, you can live how you want, or you can live a deliberate life. A life that is purposed, a life that is driven and completely guided by the calling that God has placed in my life. I'm not saying that I do that all the time. A life that is not entangled by sin or with a need to make a name for myself. Those are the things that I struggle with most. A life that is stripped of any unnecessary, unnecessary liberty that could ultimately detract from or dilute the working of the Holy Ghost in my life. Remember, Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. Just because we can do something, how is it going to lead to the eternal salvation of another person? Just something to think about. The life of a true disciple of Christ, a true servant of the living God, is a radical one. As an Olympian sacrifices their body to a daily training regimen in hopes of ultimately winning the gold... As a soldier goes through boot camp to learn how to give his life for a greater cause, so we must be wholly dedicated to the calling on our lives. You know, becoming a Christian isn't grabbing for the crutches out of weakness. It's enlisting in the sacred war for the souls of all mankind. Spoiler alert. I know who wins. Okay. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for uh, encouraging us to to live deliberately, to take what God has called us to do in making disciples and take it to heart and make it our aim. In Jesus' name, amen.